Let's pray. Uh, God, I want to thank you for your love and your grace and the mercy that you have upon us and for, for the gift of children, for the gift of community, for the gift of church. And Father, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So last week we started this journey through discipleship. It's kind of that buzzword that all churches want to... Um, want to be involved in, and you, there's books and there's programs and all kinds of things that can help us create an environment of discipleship within, within the church. But I wanted to take maybe a, a little different approach. Um, I, I didn't want to look at, right off the bat, the how to become a disciple. I thought we would look at the how come of becoming a disciple, because I really believe that when we understand how come, the how to becomes very easy. The how to doesn't become a program or a, a book that we read. The, the how to is just a way of life for us. Because the how come is Jesus Christ. That's why we become disciples, because of Jesus. And now I guess we can ask the question, and I'm going to ask a lot of questions this morning. I've been wrestling with a lot of these questions. What is, a, what is it about Jesus that draws us to him? Why should we become a disciple of Jesus? Now, I know that sounds like almost like, like a dumb question to ask on Sunday morning in church with a bunch of church people. But, I mean, I, I do believe it's a worthwhile thing for us to wrestle with. I believe that once we know Jesus, discipleship becomes the desire of our hearts. And my fear as a pastor is just because people are in church doesn't mean they know Jesus. They may know about Jesus. They may know some Bible stories. They may be able to, re, uh, to reenact the flannel graph of days of olds. But they don't know Jesus. Our discipleship is built upon, our discipleship is not built upon some foundation of a deity or a God who has lost control of his creation and now he's scrambling to make things better, to kind of clean things up, to put things back in order. Our discipleship is based upon the foundation of a God who has had a plan since the very beginning. And I know sometimes that's hard to kind of comprehend, but that's, that's, that's who God is. Nothing is out of his control right now. Nothing is out of God's control. And God's plan is moving along exactly the way God's plan should move along. There's not a single hiccup in anything of God's plan. In fact, God doesn't even react to things. It's always his plan. And yet, somehow in that, he doesn't determine, but yet he still determines. And that's the depth of sovereignty, his sovereignty over all his creation. And the fulfillment of his plan is and always will be and always was Jesus Christ. It's always been the plan from the very beginning. Last week we took a, a 30,000 foot look at the book of Hebrews and how it communicated and how that writer was able to weave the Old Testament and pointing us to the gospel, pointing us to the New Testament. And ultimately we landed on this idea that, that in Hebrews it talks about Jesus being the, the final sacrifice the once and for all sacrifice. There's, there needs to be no more for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus was it. And, that, and he is king. He is priest. And he is the sacrifice. And that's always been part of God's plan. 
And so if we're in the mode of asking questions this morning, well, we can ask the question, well, what did God accomplish in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross? It's a worthwhile question. Thanks for asking. This morning, I want to take a look at the book of Colossians. We have to climb back in our plane and cruise to the altitude of about 30,000 feet because Colossians begins to answer this question for us. Why the sacrifice of Jesus? Why the cross? But I want to start with this verse. And Steve, if you would put that verse back up there. This is a beautiful song that's written in the book of Colossians. Paul writes this from prison. And he says this, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is one of my favorite uh, texts in, in all the scripture because it just speaks to the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we kind of unpack this person of Jesus, as Paul unpacks this person of Jesus in the book of Colossians, we will see that he speaks a lot about that Christ has victory over the powers, over the forces, over the authorities that are in this world. That once and for all, this sacrifice has brought him to victory over powers, over forces, over principalities that, are, that seem to have control in this world. Now, again... What, what powers are we talking about here? What, what does this victory look like? And what in the world does it have to do with discipleship? Again, very good questions. The people that read this letter originally that Paul wrote them to, the, the, the church in, in uh, Colossae, uh, they, would ex- they would know exactly what he was talking about when he talked about these powers and these forces because in the ancient world, that's what the world was full of. There were full of powers and forces and authorities that you had to deal with. Pagan beliefs were all about this. They were all about these, these spirits and these gods. And, 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 and these spirits, these powers, these forces would, would control circumstances and people on earth and have physical outcomes to things. The world was full of them. They were around every corner. Some were really evil. But you had to deal with them in order to survive. This is what the ancient pagans believed. And this is how they lived their life. So if you were headed out to sea, you had to make offering or sacrifices to the God of the sea to make sure that you would have safe voyage or safe return. If you were going into battle, you had to make offerings and sacrifices to the gods of war so that you can win or hopefully you can win or at least not be killed. If you were starting a business, there were gods for that, that you would offer sacrifices to or offerings If you were looking for a wife or a husband or you wanted your child to be married, you would offer sacrifices to the gods or the goddesses to make sure to help that whole process along. See, within this pagan cultural mindset, they lived in fear and uncertainty that if their offerings were enough, are they going to be accepted? Would they have success? Would they fail? Life was very complicated for them. They were continually living in that uncertainty. 
Have I offered enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I gone to the temple enough? Angry gods and demons and spirits and powers and forces, man, they, they were around every corner. And see, the, 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 what they believed was that these, uh, they, didn't, they didn't see these shadowy ghosts flying around, but these, these forces manipulated and influenced people. And through that manipulation and influence, things happened in the world. So if, you're, if you went into battle, if your tribe or your village or your nation went into a battle with another tribe, village, or nation, and you won, it was because your God was stronger than their God. If your business succeeded, it was because you made the right amount of offering. You see, spiritual and physical, they were all interrelated into one another. There was no separation. And, and spiritual, the spiritual side of it was this hidden dimension, but yet it, it had to do with the physical reality and explained what was happening in, in their worlds. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, those, those ancient, pagan Christ, or ancient pagans, they were, they were just kind of, they're kind of crazy a little bit. I mean, I'm glad that we've evolved past that in our day and age, aren't you? Or have we? Who's control of this world? We would say governments, nations, the UN, politicians, economies. But I would say no. Every government, every culture has a government, some kind of government. In our culture, every side of the aisle, politicians, they, they seem to be able to blame certain forces or powers that seem to be out of their control for what's wrong in the world. And yes, when things go right, they tend to take credit for the things that are go, going right. But when things go wrong, well, there's, there's something outside their control. There's these forces outside of our control. They're economic forces. They're global forces. They're, they're um, political forces in powers, foreign policies that, that we just can't seem to reel in. And all of these powers and all of these forces create circumstances and situations in our world that we have to live in. That we either do well or we don't do well. The collapse of the banking industry, the, the car industry that was in trouble, recessions and unemployment, the rise and fall of the dollar. These forces, these powers seem to control those things and push and pull those things. And then on the glo- a global scale, they're responsible. They create wars and they create poverty and they create hunger. I mean, I mean, poverty and hunger beyond what the average American can ever really understand, unless you've traveled outside of our country. And the brightest, most intellectual people in the world can't figure out how to stop them, can't quite figure out how to change them. And so we have things like homelessness and slums and gangs and violence and war. And ask a politician why, ask a government why, and then you'll get a roundabout answer. And they might blame someone else, but it always comes down to things that seem to be out of their control. These forces, this climate that they can't seem to reel in. We, we, have, we have technology today. We have satellites in space that can take a picture of your license plate on your car from halfway around the world and know where you're going. We have, we have instantaneous news and knowledge at, at, our, at our fingertips. It, it's, there it is. I can ask Siri almost anything. And if she's in a good mood, she'll give me the right answer. 
One time we were sitting across from a church, a different church, and I asked, hey, Siri, where's God? And it gave the address to Oasis. I was like, yes, it was awesome. But now she's an agnostic and she doesn't believe in God anymore. But I digress. But it would seem to me that the tree of knowledge is still alive and well, isn't it? And we love to feed off it. We still have an appetite for it. We have computers that will give us answers to questions we haven't even asked yet. And we have smart bombs. And our smart bombs, we keep our smart bombs to make sure that they don't hurl their smart bombs at us. And we play this game of of chicken. And we have think tanks around the world with really smart people, the smartest thinkers, thinking about really smart things. And we still can't cure poverty. We still can't stop people from killing each other over pieces of land or religious beliefs. We still can't get clean drinking water to everyone. And we ask why. And the answer you get is there are powers and forces that that are beyond our control. Governments. And yeah, you could take a person out of the government, but you know what? You could put it. We're all, it's all interchangeable. Our planet is capable of growing enough food to feed every living person. Our planet is capable of growing enough food to feed every living person. Yet one, two, three, four. Someone just died of starvation. Two, three, four. Another one. And another one. Every four seconds, someone dies of starvation. And we ask why. There's forces beyond our control that we just cannot seem to fix. We cannot seem to reel in. See, maybe the ancient pagans, they weren't so far off. Climates and policies and forces and powers, things that are just bigger than ourselves that we just can't get our our mind around and we can't seem to make right. Not for lack of trying, we try, but we just can't reel it in. And and, and the ancients, they they, they at least gave names to them. They they called it, they called them Aphrodite and Mars and and Zeus and all these different names. And we just kind of hide behind our intellectualism and we just kind of cast blame on something else. But this is what Paul's letter to the Colossians is addressing. He's addressing these powers and these forces. And he's telling us, wait, wait, wait. Something has changed. Something is very different now. And he does it with a, with a very interesting perspective. Because he, he talks, it's not only a letter about Jesus overcoming these powers of the world. But also about, about being thankful. And living a life of thanksgiving. First he starts the letter off by, by, uh, by thanking God that there's even a church in this small little city. And then he goes and he prays that these people would live a life of thankfulness to God. And then as he's, as he's kind of laying out all these ideas of thankfulness, he writes this. Steve, the next. And whatever you do, he tells the church, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. No matter what you do, no matter what you're doing, what you're thinking, the words you speak, give thanks And that's the truth of the heart of a disciple, a follower of Jesus, that we would live a life of thankfulness. Now, I know that we would like to think, okay, what what should we be thankful for? Shouldn't thankfulness have a subject or an object? And Paul will, he will address that. Next slide, Steve. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of 
of sin. This is why we're thankful. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. This is, this is Exodus language here. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament when God's people were in slavery, the darkness of slavery, and he calls them out. He leads them out into the freedom as God's new people, as God's people, as his chosen people, as his liberated people. And he leads them into light. And we, through the gospel, we now can have that same journey, that same exodus. That we can, no, we don't have to be under the, the, the yoke of sin, but we have been set free. And we have been set free into the light. Why? Because of Jesus, the visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Why? Because of Jesus. This is why we're thankful. This is why we should live in thankfulness. You know, all the stuff that happens in the world, all the stuff that we see, all the stuff that's kind of on the, ex, on the outside and the exterior, it all has this internal or interior consequences for all people. We all feel the weight of certain things that, that happen, that we see, that we read, that we experience. And the external events of Jesus' life, his, his life, his death, the resurrection, his ascension, they too have interior consequences for us as people. And as the things of the world are done with this, within the context of worldly powers, the life of Jesus, the interior consequence, is one of power. But it's one of power of reconciliation to God. It's one of light. It's one of forgiveness. Jesus, the, the, the visible image of the invisible God, a God who created this world, who loves this world, and is reconciling everything back to himself in this world through the gospel, through his son. And so let's, let's take a minute and, and unpack this idea of power. These powers, where, where did they come from? What happened? Like, like who, who got the ball rolling? Colossians 1.16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's a very interesting verse, isn't it? All things have been created through him, and for him. The things we can see, the things that we can't see, the powers and the forces that are in the world. See, God's intention for all of this was not to have it be in chaos, but it would have a sacred order to it. And these powers that were created by Christ were, are part of that sacred order. But we have to ask the question, well, what in the world happened? Why do things seem to be out of control? Well, basically in the garden, because of sin, we, we had given up the authority that was given to us by God over these powers and these forces. And we gave them over to the world. And the world has taken control of them and has perverted them uh, out of the harmony of God, out of God's original plan. We have given up. We were created under God's authority to live under his authority. And God said, I'm going to give you authority over this world. And we went, you know, I'd rather be God. And we gave up. We gave up our rights to them. And once they took over outside of God's rhythms, humanity became very, very broken. Chapter 2 of Colossians, if you read it, if you've read it, 
Paul begins to unpack the idea that because of Jesus, church, we no longer have to submit to those authorities, those powers, those forces, those forces that control nations and cultures and they want to absorb the church into them and and push God out of them. We no longer are under control of them or by them because of Christ. He now has broken the control. He now has put those powers on notice. He has shown us the original way or, or a new way, the original way of being human. The world says, these powers say, these forces say, the one with the most toys wins. That money is important. What does Jesus say? You can't serve God in money. The world will tell us, man, you need to take what is yours. Take what is yours. That we can live by the sword because that's how things happen. That's how we get what we want. And Jesus would tell us, those who live by the sword, they die by the sword. He has come against those authorities and those powers. And these, these worldly powers, they say, wait, wait, wait. You're going you're gonna to push against us? You're going to try to stop us? We are invincible. You cannot stop us. And so tanks roll in. And, and terrorism runs rampant. You can't stop us. In fact, we're going to make sure we're going to take this son of God of yours. And we're going to nail him to the cross. Look, we win. But the cross isn't Jesus losing. The cross is him winning against those powers and against those authorities. They thought they had him beat. Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh, oh, nay, nay. I am beating you. See, the love of God is much stronger than anything this world can throw at us or even offer us. And so now what happens? Jesus wins. He's put them on notice. Well, let's, let's go to the next verse. Verses. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And look at verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And there is the beauty of the gospel. See, the world has taken gifts from God Money, sexuality, and we could just go on and name and name and name them. But our desire not to partake in the, the sexual perversion of the world doesn't mean that we don't have to enjoy our sexuality. Our, our not serving money so that we can serve God doesn't mean that we have to stop earning money or stop using it. Living in the reality of God's kingdom doesn't mean that we have to succeed from the union and start our own state. See, Jesus has overcome all of the powers and forces of this world. And now we can live in the calling that we originally been called to. That we can live in the image 
as image bearers of, of God. God is reconciling it all back to him, to himself. Next verse. And through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He's bringing it all back to himself. All things were created for good, but they've gotten out of control. Jesus on the cross defeated them all. All of them. All of the, the bad, all of the hard, all of the, the disillusioned, all of the brokenness. Jesus has defeated it all, and he's reconciled them all back to the Father. The Colossians were told, and I believe we were, we were told too, that we have been set free from them all so that we can follow Jesus. We've been set free from all of them so we can follow Jesus. That's why we live as grateful disciples, thankful for Christ and the cross. Paul writes throughout the book of Colossians that we are now in Christ. We are in Christ and the powers of this world no longer have any influence over us. The old way has gone and the new way is upon us. Church, are we willing to live into that victory? Are we willing to understand that that we are not burdened by the things of the world anymore because of Christ and the cross? You know, by the time he gets to uh, chap, I'm sorry, um, Chapter 3, verses 5 on, he kind of lays out what this whole discipleship thing kind of looks like. And, and he writes that there's no more sexual immorality, there's no more lust, there's no more evil desires, there's no more greed. There, there's, there's, there's none of that anymore because he has, he has uh, canceled them, he has overcome them, he has destroyed them on the cross. But here's the gospel message. If we don't understand the victory of Christ from the cross, if we don't fully live into that, then we have no, we have no footing to stand on. We cannot overcome these things on our own. It's by the cross and the cross alone that we would press into Christ, press into the gospel, understand that it's not on us. It's already what he has done, and we receive that victory from him. That's the good news. We can be victorious. We can live in victory if only we would recognize Christ and live into the calling that he calls us to. The battle's been won. And yeah, we fight these skirmishes every day, but the the battle has been won. And within this new victory, we can live grateful and in gratitude in love and in life. How do we live in that victory? I'm telling you, every time that you give of yourself with thankfulness to the Lord, what you proclaim is Jesus is Lord and not the forces of this world. Every time that you are grateful for the things that you've been given to you, you claim that Jesus is Lord and not not the forces of this world. Every time you love in the name of Jesus, you claim him to be Lord and not a love that this world tries to dictate to us. In your prayer time, Jesus is Lord, and not this world. Not this world. Our job, our job as disciples, is to live in victory. It's not to read the books, it's not to... Uh, do the programs, and those things are good. Believe me, uh, there, there is merit to them. But our calling is to live in the victory that's already ours through the cross. 
And when the church begins to live in the victory that's been given to us by Jesus Christ, those powers are put on notice. And they begin to lose their credibility. They begin to lose their strength because the church is moving forward in the power of the cross. And we know that one day, even those powers of the world, one day they will bow their knee to the Lord Jesus. Father, I want to thank you for the message of Paul's writings in Colossians. Thank you that we stand victorious. And Father, I pray that we would live in that victory. I pray that we would understand what it means to live in victory. That we don't have to fear. We don't have to worry. The world is subject to you. You are sovereign over all things. You do not react. You do not respond. But you control. And yet you allow us to live in the freedom of the cross. Give us eyes that see. Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart that's open to this gospel. Let us put our shoulders back. Put our heads high. And live for the joy of freedom and victory that is ours in Christ. We love you. We're so grateful for you. We all come before you in the name of your precious Son. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. I'll see you next week.